0: This is part one of the spiritual science of yoga. I'm going to try to explore how spiritual science works and how it applies to yoga in particular and in particular the Ananda Marga tradition of yoga. The reason I work with ananda Marga tradition partly because uh, this is the tradition that I grew up with and have a certain affiliation with. Um, but partly, I have a good reason to choose this tradition because an is essentially the refinement of yoga to teach oneness through yoga and um, there 's plenty of other yoga traditions, plenty of them that that teach how to find devotional love of all things and um Nandamagi yoga at least in some cases can take people further than that into the into the oneness. And the oneness is the is the thing that I'm into. I like oneness and I think it's kind of important for the world. And at some point in this course we'll also look at why that is and see if I can demonstrate the importance of oneness to people individually. And of the world in general. So let's start with science. What is science? So, science, of course, is, is about knowledge, it's about understanding things, but it's about trying to um, understand things in a systematic way so that we're sure of what we under, do understand and what we don't understand. And, of course, as all good wisdom, it begins with, I don't know, what is it that I don't know, and let's see if I can, through pinpointing what I don't know, figure out what I do know. So science essentially goes through three stages. The first stage is observation. Have a look at what happens in the world and uh, see if you can notice some things. So if we know what we don't know, then then we can start to observe in that area. Of course it doesn't always have to start with what you don't know. It can start with simple observation and maybe in that you'll notice something new. But let's have a look. What could we start with? To make a very simple concrete example, um, if you pick up a rock and let go of it, it falls down. Now these days we have all kinds of theories of gravity and and exactly how that works. So imagine the original people who picked up a rock and let it fall down. And all they could do was observe that things fall down, most of the time. If you look around you notice that sometimes things float in the air and sometimes birds fly, and etc. So So why is this? So here is our observation. Rocks fall, feathers don't fall as fast, birds fly. What's going on here? And then the second step is theory. And so you come up with some kind of theory about why it is that things fall down. And um, Maybe in... At some point of time, maybe the theory would have been something, some mythical understanding of, well, mythical idea about what the gods have to say to us. Uh, Maybe it's um, up there in the sky is the heaven and we're not allowed to go to the heaven, it's the place for the gods, and so we're being pulled down to earth to make sure we stay in our place. Um, It's a theory, the, the way you look at the theory and you question the, the effectiveness of the theory is firstly, does it explain the facts? Does it explain why things fall down? It kind of does. Okay. The secondly is, it, does it help you to predict things? So, this theory. Is, is, it does kind of explain things, but it doesn't really help us to understand exactly when things will fall and how fast they will fall. And so the theory is okay as far as it goes, um, but perhaps it could be refined. And then we also get to the point of um, is it the simplest theory? We have a series of different theories that can explain the facts we tend to choose the simpler one, because um, simple explanations that uh, a simple concept that explains more of the world tends to give us a kind of structural analysis of, of rules that underpin everything, whereas a complicated analysis that only explains a small amount Will give, won't will give us as much useful information. Um, so there tends to be a, a a choice to move towards simpler explanations. Um, Edward de Bono said, not just of science, but in all things, everything should be as simple as possible and no simpler. Hang on, I'm not sure he actually in, invented that phrase. We'll have to check who said it first, but he used it. Um, And the question is, of course, how simple can you make things, and how do you know when you've got it as simple as possible? And you never really do. But you do your best. So we have some kind of theory. And uh, maybe we have several theories. So one is that the gods are are going to, uh, are trying to control us. And then we try and test the theory. Of course, this is a theory that's not very easy to test. So... We tend to try to look for another theory, something that's simpler, smaller and easier to test so that we can actually expand our knowledge. Whether the gods have anything to say about the matter or not is possible, but um, not very useful information. So we kind of discard that. So yeah, maybe, but let's look at something that we can actually test. So we try to test what 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 theories can we make that we can test and so one of them might be that everything falls down and heavy things fall faster than light things and so we can do a test and get different heavy things and light things and see how fast they fall and we get a, a rock and we get a piece of lead and we get a feather and we get a leaf and we get a grain of sand and see how fast they fall. And um, so we do tests. So the testing is the third, uh, third part of the scientific approach. So we start with observation, theory, and testing. So in this example, if you actually tested the, the speed that things fall, you would find that the answer is not as expected, it's not as expected that heavy things fall faster than light things. Actually, it's much more complicated. Things fall at the same speed unless they have a certain amount of wind resistance, and then the wind resistance, depending on the weight of the body compared to the wind resistance, affects the speed of the fall. Um, so, you do some testing, and that gives you m- more observation. Every time you do a test, you have more observations, and then you repeat. You come up with a new theory. Now we have a theory that says that there's some kind of force that is the same on everything. Everything falls at the same speed. And then we can look at, again, what's the theory behind this? How does this work? What is our guess? And then we move on to testing again. So this is a cycle that can be repeated and repeated and repeated and is essentially the way that we explore scientific knowledge. We take an observation, make a theory, find a test, and make another observation, deepen the theory in some way, refine the theory, make another test. So this can be done in in all areas. And the kinds of observations and theories and experiments may be different in different areas of science. So, The kind of uh, experiment that you do when you're trying to understand physics is very different to the kind of experiment you do when you're trying to understand, say, human psychology. So human psychology, often the experiments are actually asking people questions and trying to understand from their responses something about them. Whereas a uh, physics experiment will be actually working with physical objects and seeing what happens when you do certain things with them. You try and have some kind of uh, controlled situation that enables you to get some knowledge out of it. You never have precise knowledge, there's always a kind of uh, a, a error margin, an element of, of uncertainty in what's happening. If you're doing a physical experiment, then there's there's a limit to how precisely you can make things go at the speed that you want them to go. If you're doing a psychology experiment, there's a limit to how precisely you can understand somebody, and there's Uh, need to compare that to other people to see if it's something that's uniquely about that person or whether it's a pattern that can be said about many people. Um, And even when you do that, there is always a certain level of uncertainty. So science is very much about dealing with uncertainty. It's not about absolute facts. It's about here is what we think we know to the best of our ability, and here is the area where we are uncertain. And, and the more we test and the more we observe, the more certain we can be. So, when we try to apply this to spiritual science, we have to use slightly different methods of observation. We have to do different methods, different kinds of theories, and different kinds of experiments. But the same basic approach can still apply we can try to explore how much can we understand, and what don't we understand, and and where is it possible to refine our, our knowledge and our understanding. So the uh, the question that comes up is how do you actually observe and create kind of results of an experiment in spiritual science which is which is so difficult to to observe. It can't be observed by any any kind of machinery. Well, there are a few elements that might be observable by machinery, but it's very limited. Um, you could observe heart rates and brainwaves and and things like that, and people do. But uh, what can be said from a, about a brainwave is is much less detailed than the actual person's inner experience. So, to a certain extent what we're talking about is, is observing people's inner experience. And the only way you can observe an inner experience is by zo- observing your own inner experience. You can't actually observe other people's inner experiences. So, they talk about um, subjectivity and objectivity. The spiritual science is very, very subjective. Um, But that doesn't mean that we can't observe. We can observe what goes on inside ourselves, and we can compare that to what goes on inside other people. And so we can find the best possible ways of of doing this. Of course, understanding that there are many limitations and we're not going to be able to ever fully define and prove every point, but at least we can improve our understanding. So the, the four basic methods that I can think of for observing spiritual spiritual experiences and spiritual practices and understanding how they work. The first one is what you would call a proving. So proving um, comes from the old use of the word proof, which doesn't mean to prove something that it 's true it means to test it means to test if it's true and what's going on so provings are used in homeopathics a lot and homeopathics have developed a very very detailed system that actually works uh, like a system of of how to test very subtle um, substances and very subtle effects and this is a um, methodology that can be applied very very widely in the spiritual science arena because we're also looking at trying to explore and understand these very very subtle effects so how proving works is that you you start with observing everything that's going on inside you how do i feel physically how do i feel mentally what kind of experiences am I having? How happy am I? Try to observe what is my state at this point. In homeopathic provings, you would write it down and you would have somebody actually interview you to ask you a lot of questions to make sure you got a lot more detailed information about how you feel now. Um, that gives us a kind of baseline to see what changes. And then in the homeopathics you would take a take a drop and then you would observe what changes because the same technique can be used with other things you can do a yoga posture you can do a meditation you can say a mantra you can do any of the spiritual techniques and you can observe what changes in you so in the observation to do it very formally and very and very detailed the Homeopaths would, again, have somebody interviewing you and asking you questions and also making sure that you have a notebook with you at all the times. And for the next uh, month, actually, after you've taken this this drop of medicine, you record all of the symptoms and changes and things that happen to your mind and your body and, and your experience. Um, and then... Of course, one person has an experience doesn't, doesn't give us very much information. But if you have a series of different people and they all get similar experiences, then we get a lot more information. So you work with 10, 20 people and do the same process with them and see what, what results are predictable and kind of found across a series of different people and what results are uh, unique to certain people um, it doesn't mean that we discard the results that are unique to individuals, but it does mean that you take more seriously the results that can be found across many people so provings is is a basic technique that is fairly wide-ranging in its, in its ability to observe what goes on in, in the subtle worlds in both of people's inner experiences and spiritual experiences. So a, a possible proving that we could do on uh, Anandamagya Yoga techniques could be to take a couple of different approaches to meditation and compare their results, compare how you feel when you do this meditation, or how you feel when you do this meditation. So let's take Baba Nam Kevalam meditation, Baba Nam Kevalam. For those not familiar with it, it means, well it's generally translated as love is all there is, but it actually means literally uh, only the name of the father, which is, sounds a lot more religious, but essentially means exactly the same thing. There is only one spiritual, divine essence to the universe. Okay? So this is a mantra that we use a lot in Nandamaga and is supposed to have some particular effects on the mind. So let's actually observe those effects. So start with measuring kind of subjective scale, how happy you are. Ten is the maximum possible happiness, and zero is the minimum possible happiness. Zero to ten, how happy are you in this moment? And then you can do a one to five minute short meditation, and in your mind, every time you breathe in, you say silently, Bhavanam Kevalam, and then you breathe out, and then you breathe in again, and you say Bhavanam Kevalam. Every time. And at the end of the meditation, see if you can do a, a, another observation of your happiness level. And zero to ten, how happy am I now? and Has it changed? Has it made a difference to your happiness level? Um, once you've done this exercise, you could do it on a few other meditations. You could try doing the same with a just awareness of your breathing meditation and see if that also changes your happiness level and if it changes it to a similar extent or different. And you could then do the, another meditation, like counting your breaths. Every time you breathe in, you count one and breathe out. And you breathe in, count two and breathe out. Another interesting one would be to, to do the bhavanam kevalam on both in and out breath. So we've got as you breathe in and kevalam as you breathe out. And compare the results of these different meditations. Which ones make you the happiest? Which ones have the biggest difference in in your happiness level? And is there a large difference between these different meditations? Or is there a small difference between these meditations? Um, does meditation in general end up with you being happier at the end or not? Um, Let's uh, maybe take a little time to do this meditation now. You can stop the, the audio and try doing some of these experiments and see what, what results you come up with. Once you've done those meditations and observed that and seen what results you come up with, I'd be, be really interesting to hear. interested to hear what results they are. I will um, now point out the other different techniques that we can use that I know of that we can use to explore and test spiritual science. Um, We probably won't go into them in as much depth today but they will become more important later on. So part of the provings methodology is the comparison, the comparison between different people. So this comparison by itself can be used to great effect if we actually talk to different people around the world, listen to what they say, listen to the different spiritual teachers and compare what different people are saying. When you have things that have a certain agreement among people, then they can be taken a bit more seriously than those that don't have agreement. So for example, Um, there's a question of what is God, what is the divine and and it's very difficult for us to to answer that and and many people who have not done very much meditation or even done a fair bit but not got to the real real depths of mysticism that the masters have, um, perhaps have not much ability to really even comprehend what is this God, this divine being that people are talking about. Cosmic consciousness, whatever you call it. So, if we ask the mystics, and we listen to them what the mystics say, there's a very kind of general consensus among them that the divine is something that is unlimited and impossible to pin down with any description. And all we can say is what it's not, that it's not limited, it's not harsh, it's not small, it's not, it's not, it's not. So having this kind of general description that many, many agree with from very, very different traditions all over the world that even obviously have not had much to do with each other, they've just discovered this separately, gives us some kind of interesting evidence, and that evidence is worth looking at and, and seeing what we, can, what we can make of it. Another technique is the body's wisdom, so it turns out that the body responds, the body's like energy system um, responds to truth and falseness, and it, it strengthens itself in, in truth. And in false, falseness it becomes weak. So if you say something that's true, your body actually somehow becomes a channel for stronger energies. And you are able to, in your your muscular system, demonstrate a level of strength that's not possible when you're saying something that's untrue. Now the interesting thing here is that this is not only about things that you know are true or false, this can also be about things that you don't know. So we find that uh, the body knows a lot more about true and false, or perhaps it's your uh, energy system that connects to the universe rather than your physical body, but your energy body knows a lot more about the truth of the nature of things than does our conscious mind. Um, And because the the body can give quite a strong binary answer, yes, no, um, depending on its strength and weakness, it's possible to actually get some very, very clear uh, clear answers that are a bit more um, defined than the answers of that we get from the provings which are about feelings and experiences. Um, there are some difficulties, of course, with using this technique. It can. It, it, it depends a little bit on the skill of the user. And um, so, it's not an infallible technique, but it's a very interesting one to explore and to see what how we can use it. Another technique, that um, that's kind of an extension of that, is um, Dr. David Hawkins, who's a kinesiologist as well as uh, several other kinds of things, I believe he's a medical doctor as well as having a PhD in some field, so um, he said, he, he was very interested to explore this this kind of area, and he found that um, he was able to actually create a scale of of upliftment of essentially the scale of happiness. It's very much like the zero to ten scale that I talked about earlier. How happy are you? How uplifted are you? How positive are the spiritual vibes in you? Um, And he was able to create a detailed scale, zero to a thousand, and use the body's wisdom, the kinesiology, to test this scale, to test where people were, how uplifted they were in their consciousness at the time, and also to test other things. So you could actually look at uh, a song or a, a painting or a piece of writing, a book, and you could test the upliftment level of, of that art, or that creation, or that object. Um, which gives us a very, very uh, precise method of, of looking at these different um, effects of different spiritual techniques. Of course, again, there's some art to being able to use this well and to understand exactly what it means, but. It does uh, give us some useful information to to go on. So, over this course, I intend to take us through these different these different methodologies and see if we can explore how we can use them in understanding and deepening our, our yoga practice. So, if you have already done the meditation research exercise experiment that I, that I suggested earlier then um, well if you haven't done that then maybe it would be good to, as a takeaway to, to do this at some time before you listen to the next episode if you know about uh, kirtan and how we dance stepping one step behind the other one foot behind the other, each step, and touching the tip of the toe on the floor. Here's another interesting exercise, a, a question to see if you can figure out. Where do you touch the big toe, or the toe on the floor? Try touching the tip of the toe, or the ball of the toe, or different parts, different ways of touching that foot on the floor and see the different results. See if you can feel how you feel when you do it one way, how you feel when you do it another way and can you find a way of doing it that feels best for you. And then if you can find that and uh, you have others that you can talk to and are uh, working through this with them, then it's worth comparing the results. Ask them what did they get? What did they find best? And see if you come up with the same results or different results. be interesting to see. Okay, go well. See you in the next lesson. Namaskar.